0: Good morning, church family, and grace to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Nehemiah chapter 7. Nehemiah chapter 7. We're going to pick it up in verse 5. We're going to go all the way through to chapter 8 and verse 8. And if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide under the seats, you will find this on page 402. As always, I'm going to begin in a word of prayer, and then we'll consider the text together. Let's bow together now. Our Lord, we are indeed so grateful to be here today. We thank you for the high privilege of being able to gather and to worship you. And Lord, we pray now that in this portion of our worship, as we explore this passage of your word... Help us to understand what it is teaching us. Help us, Lord, to make sound application of it to our lives. And please be glorified in the time that we spend in your word today. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So back in 1961, A.W. Tozer wrote that worship is the missing jewel in the evangelical church. He said, in its place has come that strange and foreign thing called the program, which is a word borrowed from the stage and applied with sad wisdom to the public service which now passes for worship among us. In other words, Tozer was saying that the evangelical church had replaced worship with amusements. Now, I wish I could say that things have improved in the 60 years since he wrote those words, but sadly, they have not. If anything, they have gotten worse. So that today, in many a church, corporate worship is indistinguishable. Okay? It is indistinguishable from worldly entertainment. Friends, this is not pleasing to God. And so it would seem that the recovery of true God-honoring worship should be a matter of first importance for the church today just as it was for Nehemiah in his day. Now, if you're just joining us this week, Nehemiah was an Israelite who lived in Persia about 2,500 years ago. And he was also a very godly man. And when he learned about the awful state of God's people back in Israel, he knew that he had to do something about it. And So immediately, Nehemiah began fasting and praying and brainstorming until finally he came up with a plan. And he took his plan to his boss, King Artaxerxes of Persia. And Artaxerxes gave him permission to execute the plan. And so Nehemiah packed his bags, traveled 750 miles from where he was to the city of Jerusalem, and there he would begin a rebuilding effort in Israel. Nehemiah was very smart, and he realized that if the nation of Israel was to be revitalized, it would have to begin with her capital city, Jerusalem. And he also understood that if Jerusalem was to be revitalized, it would have to begin with her walls. Because as long as Jerusalem had no walls, she would always be vulnerable to foreign invasions. And so Nehemiah marshaled this heroic effort to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, and for a number of weeks, we watched Nehemiah lead this effort, getting all of Israel involved, men, women, and children, getting involved to rebuild Jerusalem's walls. We saw them build the walls together, and we watched as the walls were completed. The walls were completed, so now the question is, what is Nehemiah going to do next? Well, the answer is that he's going to rebuild Israel's worship. He's going to rebuild Israel's worship because there can be no lasting reformation or revitalization without God-honoring worship. You see, reformations are fueled by worship. This is what we're going to see in today's text. It is a rather lengthy text that we're looking at today, but it breaks up very nicely into two main parts. Okay, in chapter 7, we see Nehemiah's preparations for worship. And then in the first part of chapter 8, we see their first corporate worship service. I'm going to go through chapter 7 very quickly so that we can spend most of our time there in the opening verses of chapter 8. Let's begin then with 7, chapter 7. Let's look at Nehemiah's preparations for worship. How is he going to, to do the work of getting God's people ready to worship? Well, we see that what he's going to do is conduct a census. Conduct a census. And he attributes the idea to God himself. Look at verse 5 with me. He writes, Then God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. So what's Nehemiah doing here? Well, he wants to find out how many people are in Israel. He wants to find out what tribes they all belong to and where they all live. But he also has a special concern to identify who is available to lead their corporate worship. And so verse 43, we find that he identifies all of the Levites. This is the tribe responsible for leading Israel's worship. Then verse 44, he identifies all of the singers. They will have a key role in the worship. Verse 45, Nehemiah identifies all of the gatekeepers, that is, the temple gatekeepers. They're also responsible for worship. Verse 46, he identifies all of the temple servants. They assisted the priests in worship. Then down to verse 57, Nehemiah identifies all of the sons of Solomon's servants. These were still more helpers in worship. Verse 60, he identifies additional temple servants. Then we come to verses 63 to 65. This is a really interesting passage because here Nehemiah identifies a group of men who claim that they are Israelites, and they express a desire to serve as priests in Israel, and yet they cannot prove their biblical qualifications. And so Nehemiah denies their request. This is really important, friends, because, you see, Nehemiah was desperate to restart Israel's worship. But he was not going to do it at the expense of biblical faithfulness. So yes, he needed priests. But if these men could not prove that they were biblically qualified to serve as priests, he was not going to allow them to serve. And here we learn the importance of regulating our worship by the scriptures. Now we come to verses 70 through 72. After completing the census, finding out who's available to lead worship... What Nehemiah does next is begin raising money to restart their worship. And he begins with himself. Look at chapter 7, verse 70 with me. He says, Now some of the heads of the father's houses gave to the work. And the governor gave. Here he's talking about himself. The governor gave to the treasury 1,000 derricks of gold, 50 basins, 30 priest garments, 500 minas of silver. Now this is a massive Donation. It shows us just how committed Nehemiah was to restarting Israel's worship. Now, I've done the math on this chapter, and it appears to me that the average donation was about one derrick of gold for every man, woman, and child in Israel. But Nehemiah, on his own, has donated 1,000 derricks of gold. So, again, I say a huge donation. He has also donated utensils and garments, which the priests will use to lead worship. Verse 73 brings us to the conclusion of Nehemiah's preparations. It says, And so the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants and all Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. Okay, so now Nehemiah has got a good picture of what's going on there in Israel. He knows how many people there are. There were a little over 40,000 people. He also knows who's available for worship. He knows who qualifies as priests, as temple servants, as singers, as gatekeepers, and everyone else. He has now successfully raised all of the funds that he will need to make the worship service happen. And now we turn to chapter 8, verses 1 through 8, and we finally get to witness the very first public worship service in Israel since Nehemiah's return. And friends, as we walk through these verses together, I want to draw your attention to six features of that first worship service. I want to draw your attention to these features because I believe that these six features ought to be present in every worship service, in every time, and in every place, meaning that these six features ought to be present here at Grace Baptist Church every single time that we gather. Let's look at the first of these features together. From verse 1, we see that a God-honoring worship service will be filled with eager participants. It will be filled with eager participants. Look at verse 1 of chapter 8 with me. It says, And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. because that was on the east side of Jerusalem. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, that the Lord had commanded Israel. Now, friends, notice the language at the start of that verse. It says... The congregation of Israel all gathered together as one man. That means men, women, and children, all of them gathered together for this singular purpose. They had one desire, and that was to worship God together as a congregation. Second part of verse 2 says that men and women and all who could understand what they heard gathered in this great assembly. So there were men and women and children. There were were families. There were the elderly. There were the very young. This was a multi-generational, family-integrated worship event. And verse 1 also says that this massive congregation (coughs) totally... Excuse me told Ezra to come and to lead their worship. So the initiative was coming from the congregation. They said to Ezra, we have gathered together. We want to worship God and we need someone to lead us. And so they told Ezra to come and to lead their worship. And the end of verse 3 says that all of the people were attentive as Ezra spoke. Friends, this congregation is a model for all congregations at all times. Friends, every time that we gather to worship, we ought to be an eager people. We ought to be just as eager as were these Israelites at their first opportunity to worship God corporately. And if you ever struggle. Friends, if you ever struggle to find the motivation to get up and to join with the people of God in corporate worship, let me offer you just this one simple suggestion. When you find yourself struggling to get that motivation, just take a moment to ponder the privilege of corporate worship. My friend, think of all that God has done in your life. Once you were alienated from God, hostile in mind, but God in His grace did a work inside of you. He took that heart of stone and He softened it and He made it as a heart of flesh and He took that mind of yours which was hostile to God and He he removed the barriers and by His spiritual enablement, you became willing to believe willing to bow before him as your lord god redeemed you in his grace to you he brought a gospel messenger maybe a pastor or maybe a christian family member or a friend but he brought the gospel to you and by his grace you heard the gospel and you believed and you were born again and at that moment you ceased to be an enemy of god and you became one of his own children God did that for you. And the amazing part is that he didn't just do that for you, but he he did that for all kinds of other people, too, in the same vicinity where you live. And in the providence of God, he has allowed all of you, his redeemed people, his children, to come together as a single congregation. And you have the high privilege of gathering together with your fellow saints at the start of the first day of the week, every week to praise God for all that He is and all that He has done for every one of you. Friends, could there be a greater privilege than that? This is the highlight of the week to gather with those that God has saved your your new spiritual family and to fellowship with each other and to worship God together. Friends, God is honored by an eager congregation of worshipers. This congregation in Israel was eager to worship Him, and we ought to be as well. God-honoring worship is filled with eager participants. Then we see a a second feature of God-honoring worship. It will also be led by a biblically qualified man led by a biblically qualified man. Now, we've already noted how Nehemiah excluded a group of men who wanted to lead worship, but were not qualified to do so. So then, who did they get to actually lead their worship? Well, verse 1 tells us that it was this man called Ezra the scribe. Now, who was he? Well, friends, in the book of Ezra, chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, his qualifications are listed out for us. This is what Ezra was like. First of all, he was a direct descendant of Aaron, the high priest. So he had a biblical lineage to serve in the priesthood. Second, Ezra 7 says that he was deeply, deeply knowledgeable of the scriptures. And then thirdly, it says, quote, the hand of God was upon him, meaning that he was spiritually zealous, he was a pious man, and God was working in his life. In short, Ezra was a pastor-scholar par excellence. Loved God's word, loved God's people, studied hard to lead the worship. This is the man that was fit, to lead this congregation on this day. Friend, this is the kind of man that we need in our day, too. We do not need men with good looks, or great guitar playing skills, or winning personalities. What we need today to lead our worship services are men who have studied long and hard to know God's Word. Men who have devoted years of their lives to to familiarizing themselves with the content of the Scriptures, who know the storyline of the Bible from start to finish. Men who have who have learned how the storyline of Scripture correlates into a coherent worldview. Men who know their systematic theology and their church history, who know the languages and the culture of the Bible, who know how to take the timeless truths of Scripture and apply it to the everyday lives of God's people. This is what we need. And we need men of proven virtue. Men who are not interested in the job because they think they can acquire power or fame or riches from the work, but men who are committed to righteousness and holiness, and moral goodness, and we need men of proven piety, those who have been transformed by God through the scriptures, and who have had the experience of God's leading in their lives, men who can speak to God's people out of their own experience, Because these are the kinds of men that we need leading God's worship today. Now, there is an extreme shortage of such men in our day. An extreme shortage. And so let me speak to the young men of our congregation right now. The young men and the boys. Young men, if you feel a stirring within you to lead God's people, then don't suppress that stirring. Let me encourage you to cultivate it because we need more qualified men. As you look at the pastoral epistles in our New Testament and you compare them to your life and you say, look, I know I don't fully measure up yet, but I think, I think I meet the basic requirements here of the scriptures to lead God's people. Then continue to work at that. And young men and boys, let me encourage you to come to me or go to Pastor Scott and tell us about this growing desire. You know, I was only 10 years old when I went to the associate pastor of my church and said, I want to be a pastor. Can you, can you help me? How? And he started to meet with me. And we went through the virtues required for the pastor one at a time as a 10-year-old boy. So it's never too early to start. Friends, there is a shortage of qualified men. So please consider the pastorate yourself. Yes, it's a long process, and it's difficult. There's much to learn before that ordination Sunday. But, but... You will have all the help that you need every step of the way. Here at Grace, you will have me. You'll have Pastor Scott here to help you through the process. We'll get you the resources you need to pay for your schooling. We'll mentor you. We'll give you the opportunities you need to gain experience. We will help you with your congregation to decide whether you are truly qualified for the work. My friends, God-honoring worship is filled with eager participants and it's led by biblically qualified men. And thirdly, we see here that a God honoring worship service will be centered on God's Word. Centered on God's Word. Now, what does it mean for a worship service to be centered on God's Word? Well, for starters, it means that God's Word will be the only Word that is offered. Look at verse 1 again with me, end of the verse. It says, And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. Okay, So this congregation gathered. They were ready to worship. They told Ezra they wanted him to come and to lead it. And they said, Ezra, we want you to bring the book. And they call it here the book of of the law of Moses. That's just another word for the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of our Bibles, right? Ezra, come, lead us in worship, and when you do, bring the scriptures. We want to hear the scriptures. This book is also called in verse one, the book that the Lord had commanded Israel. And that's why the scriptures have to be central to our worship. Because the scriptures do not record the words of mere men. No, these are the words of God. They are inspired and inerrant and infallible words. Friends, when we gather together for worship, we don't need a word from the local newspaper columnist or the latest pop psychology text. We don't need the preacher's funny anecdotes. We need to hear from God's word because His Word has the words of everlasting life. John Calvin wrote this to his fellow pastors, When we enter the pulpit, it is not so that we may bring our own devices and fancies with us. The minister's whole task is limited to the ministry of the Word. Friends, a God-centered worship service is one in which The service begins with God's word, it concludes with God's word, and every single part of the service is informed by God's word. The hymns reflect biblical truth. The prayers reflect biblical truth. The scriptures are read verbatim to the congregation, and the sermon presented is derived from God's word. Every bit of it from God's word and from no other place. Another element of a God-centered worship service is that God's word will be expounded for an extended period of time. We see this, verses 2 and 3. Verse 2 says, So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard, on the first day of the seventh month, and he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from, notice this, from early morning until midday, For half a day, he read and expounded the Scriptures. And he did so in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So for half a day, Ezra read from the Scriptures and he expounded the Scriptures. Friends, when we gather for corporate worship, we need an extended time in God's word. Doesn't have to be a half a day, like on this occasion, but it does need to be long enough for a meaningful exposition of the text to take place so that every single person who attended the worship service can leave that day saying, I now understand a portion of the scriptures that I never understood before. I know its context, its interpretation, I know how it applies to my life. The exposition must be long enough that everyone can walk away saying those things. As the Puritan minister Richard Bernard put it, Quote, preaching should not be a labor of the lips or talk of the tongue from a light imagination, but a serious meditation of the heart in grounded knowledge by much study and illumination of the Spirit. You see, the time spent in God's Word should be time, a time where the speaker himself has given hours to study. And the people in hearing the message are studying the word too, so that they leave knowing the Scriptures better than when they arrived. A Word-centered service is one in which God's Word is the only Word considered. It's one where God's Word is expounded upon for an extended period of time. We also see here that it's one in which God's Word is delivered in an authoritative manner. Look at verses 4 and 5 with me. It says, And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform, that they had made for the purpose, and the word translated "platform" here literally means a tower. So Nehemiah, had, or excuse me, Ezra, had to speak to more than forty thousand people. So he really had to be elevated high. He ascended this, this high wooden platform with a copy of the scriptures in hand. And so, friends, on this day, the scriptures were literally physically elevated above the worshipers and this was by design in having the scriptures elevated on a platform above the worshipers what was being communicated is that god's word had brought this congregation together and that this congregation was submitting itself to the scriptures And the one who read and expounded the scriptures was likewise elevated so that God's words could be clearly heard and understood by all. You notice verse 5, it says that as Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, all the people stood up. This was just a spontaneous movement of the crowd as they saw Ezra ascending that platform with a copy of God's word in his hand, and they saw the solemn way in which he set those scriptures down and opened it up to read from, people realized this is a moment of great magnitude. We're about to hear from God's word. And the seriousness with which Ezra did his work caused everyone in the congregation to just spontaneously arise like a dignitary was entering the room. Only it was the scriptures, the words of God coming to them. And they arose out of respect for the words of God. My friends, it will not do for us to have a minister of God or a congregation take the word of God lightly. Quoting the Puritan Matthew Simpson, quote, The preacher's message is the word of God. Around him are immortal souls. The Savior unseen is beside him. The Holy Spirit broods over the congregation. Angels gaze upon the scene. And heaven and hell await the issue. What associations, what vast responsibility!" And friends, in a God-honoring worship service, both the preacher and the congregation will realize that they are part of something extremely important. They are hearing from the authoritative words of God. And God's Word is presented with authority. And it's listened to by those who, who have assigned authority to the Scriptures. They recognize its authority over their lives. Also, a a worship service centered on God's Word, we'll see God's Word explained so as to be understood. Explained so as to be understood. We've seen the importance of understanding throughout this text. In verse 2, it said, all who could understand gathered in this great assembly. Verse 3 says, all who could understand listened intently as Ezra spoke And now in verses 7 and 8, we find something very interesting. We have a listing of all of these names. These are are Ezra's helpers. It says, They helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. Verse 8, And they read from the book from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. So here's what's going on, okay? You've got Ezra, who's on the high platform, reading and expounding God's word. But remember, he is speaking to a crowd of more than 40,000 people. And he's got no speaker system. So a lot of people can hear him, but a lot of people can't. If it was just him speaking on this occasion, his words would have been lost to many. And so what Ezra did is he took a group of biblically qualified assistants. He sent them into the crowd, and I imagine them going to the back of the crowd. And they repeat the words of God that Ezra is reading. So everybody is hearing the same thing. And then they are also expounding upon the scriptures the way Ezra is. They're translating the scriptures, interpreting them, helping the people to apply the scriptures to their lives. So you've got Ezra at the head of the group, leading in the the exposition of God's word. And then you've got all of these others working through the crowd, reading and expositing the scriptures too. The goal here was that every single worshiper could hear and understand the words of God. See, friends, corporate worship isn't just a religious ritual. It is the act of God's people gathering to hear and to understand God's words so that they might respond in praise and obedience. And for that to happen, the message must be clear. Charles Spurgeon said, quote, However excellent your matter, if a man does not comprehend it, it can be of no use to him. God's Word must be understood as it is read and explained. So friends, this is what God-honoring worship looks like. It's filled with eager participants, it's led by a biblically qualified man, and it is centered on God's Word, meaning that God's Word is read and expounded upon at length and held in high authority by preacher and congregation alike. Now we see another feature of God-honoring worship from verse 6. We see that it will be aimed at the glory of God. Aimed at the glory of God. Verse 6 says, And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So Ezra has ascended that platform. The congregation is before him. He has unfolded the words of God. He's about to expound the text. The people have stood to their feet. And now Ezra begins to pray. It says he blessed the Lord. That means he was praising God. He was saying, God, thank you. Thank you for bringing us to this point. Thank you for bringing us back home from our long exile. Thank you for giving us your word, which we can now study together. Thank you, God, for redeeming us. Thank you for your great plans for us. God, please help us. Have mercy on us. Help us to be a pleasing people to you. That's what Ezra was praying. And as he did so, the whole congregation was repeating back, Amen, Amen, which means, yes, truly, God. What Ezra says, we say too. We believe it too. And we thank you. And the people lifted up their hands. You understand they were not doing so to have a, an existential encounter with God, or to, to try to feel God's presence, as, as you might find in a modern charismatic service. It wasn't like that at all. Rather, it was the posture of a small child who is reaching for his parents' help. Those of you who have small kids, young grandkids, or maybe young nieces or nephews, you've had the experience. The little one Comes, comes up to your feet, and then they pull themselves up. They, they look high up at you, and they reach their hands up, right? And they, they want you to bend down, to, to come down to help them. Or maybe they, they want you to lift them up to you. That's the posture that these worshipers had. Hands lifted up. God, come down. Minister to us by your Spirit. Help us, God. And then it says, they bowed their heads to the ground and worshiped the Lord. Another common posture in worship. By crouching down to the ground, you are communicating that God is high, you are low. He's the king, you're the subject. You see, friends, true worship is never about us. It's not about inspiring us or encouraging us or meeting our felt needs. Now, we may experience those things as a result of our time in worship, but those are not the ultimate aim. The aim of worship is about giving God the praise that He is due. To praise Him in word, in song, in prayer, in obedience. In fact, that's what the word worship means. It is to ascribe worth to God. That's what they were doing on this occasion That's what every worship service must do, must seek to glorify God. Now we come to the final feature of a God-honoring worship service. We see here that it will be solemn and orderly. Solemn and orderly. Now friends, as I look at this text, I cannot help but notice the dramatic difference between Israel's worship and that of the pagan peoples around her. Look at Israel's worship again. All the congregation of Israel, men, women, and children, gather together as one. A worship leader ascends a platform and opens a book. He reads from the book, and he explains what it means. And as he does so, the people respond with obedience and in prayer. One man leads in prayer, and the others respond with like words. Together, they lift their hands. Together, they bow to the ground. The whole thing is so reverent and orderly and solemn. What a far cry from the pagan worship of the day, a good example of which is found in 1 Kings chapter 18. Do you remember when the prophets of Baal tried to worship their false god? Scriptures say that first they started dancing wildly around their altar, and then they started screaming and hollering as if to, to try to get their God's attention. And they did this for hours and hours, trying to work themselves up into an emotional frenzy. And then they started hurting themselves, cutting themselves with knives, drawing their blood to try to get their God's attention. Oh, friends, this is not what God wants from His people. Biblical worship is orderly. Biblical worship is targeted to the mind and the will. Biblical worship dignifies its participants. Only false worship would humiliate its participants or encourage them to lose their minds in the presence of God. So, friends, to wrap this up, now this, this is what God-honoring worship looks like. It's filled with eager participants. It's led by biblically qualified men. It is centered on God's word. It is aimed at God's glory. It is orderly in its conduct. This is the kind of worship service that pleases God. But, oh, friends, how hard it is to maintain how hard it is to maintain because the temptation of pastors is always to alter their worship services to make it look and sound more like the big gatherings of the world in the vain hope of attracting a larger crowd. And friends, so often the cry of the congregants is to have such a worship service. They cry out, pastor. Pastor, give us less thinking and more feeling. Give us less Bible exposition and more skits and plays and movie clips. Give us less organ and more drum set. Give us less orderliness and more spontaneity. The cry is always to move the worship down the road of worldly entertainment. Because that is easier for people. It appeals to their passions, not to their spiritual affections. So, friends, we see here what God-honoring worship looks like, but how hard it is to maintain. The only way it will be maintained is if we all work together, the leadership, the congregation, if all of us work together to insist that things be done God's way, that we submit to his desires for worship, and that we not ask God to submit himself To our whims. Friends, let us strive for a God-honoring worship service now and always. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we do thank you for the time that you've given us today, and we pray that you would help us to put into practice what we see here, that you would help our worship services to follow the model of the worship service here that you would help us to to suppress the desires of our carnal selves to turn worship into entertainment, that instead, Lord, you would help us by your grace to put your word at the center, to put careful biblical thought and exposition at the center, to aim for a service that will will draw our spiritual affections toward you. We pray that you would help us with this in Jesus' name. Amen.